What a great bunch of passages for us this morning. And Tim, thank you so much for that super clear explanation of baptism. Speaking of which, December 24, we are baptizing Tim's son, Sinclair. So Christmas Eve, you'll all be here anyway, but I want to let you know that's going to be a wonderful opportunity to celebrate God's sign and seal of grace. Such a great explanation. Speaking of children, welcome back, Nathaniel, uh, Ken and Catherine. Where are you? Out back, bending over with a little one now. Praise God for the smooth delivery, and welcome back to church. Church, why don't we pray together as we open up God's Word? Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much for speaking truth with such clarity. And we ask you, Lord, now that you would minister to us by your Word and Spirit. Uh, Would you uh, comfort the afflicted and challenge the proud to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to week two of our sermon series, Wisdom with Wealth, where we're spending some time thinking and talking about what the Bible teaches about money. Uh, Last Sunday, we spent our time giving a bit of an introduction to what we'll be exploring over the course of this month. And so think of this like a very long sermon over four Sundays, right? Uh, We saw from Scripture last week that money matters to God, and because of that, We as Christians, and definitely as a church, cannot be silent about this topic. God has a beautiful design and purpose when it comes to money. And we're encouraged to mine the riches of the Bible in order to arrive at a healthier and more holistic attitude towards wealth. Today, we're going to continue in our series by studying, but also critiquing one of the fastest growing movements in modern day Christianity. Uh, You may not know the official term for it, but it is called the prosperity gospel. And this movement is a concern for us because it teaches a so-called Christian perspective on money that is is very popular, uh, but is very damaging and unbiblical. Uh, And its popularity may cause us to believe that this is what the Bible teaches. It may cause us to believe, oh, this is the Christian perspective. It is definitely not. And now you may not have heard of the term prosperity gospel before, but um, the heart of their teaching is this. And maybe after reading this definition, you'll go, oh, I think I've heard of that before. Uh, This definition is in your outlines under the introduction section. And it says this, the prosperity gospel teaches that individuals who exercise true faith in Christ will surely attain physical, material, and financial prosperity in this life. I'm not sure how you feel after reading this definition. Some of you will think, sure, I don't see anything wrong with that. Others may have a very strong negative reaction to it because you have been deeply wounded by churches or pastors who've taught this type of doctrine. Now, if we sort of exegete this definition for a moment, we'll quickly realize that one of the fatal flaws of the prosperity gospel is that it promises too little. It promises too little. Now, that may be really shocking to you because those of you who are familiar with the prosperity gospel will think it promises too much. Some of the major proponents of this movement, they are pastors who drive fancy cars. They live in fancy houses. They fly on fancy jets. They holiday on fancy yachts. And and they say, if you become a Christian, if you just give to God, especially their church and ministry, if you just believe it, if you name it and claim it, then all of these things can be yours. You can live like us as well. 
so filled with promise. And yet I hope to show you from Scripture that all of these promises are actually too small, too little. As we uncover what the Bible teaches, I want you to know that God has a greater inheritance for you. God has a greater inheritance for you. You see, there's nothing inherently wrong with cars, houses, jets, holidays, yachts, right? But all of these, all of these pale in comparison to the glorious inheritance that God has for us now and into eternity. This is an inheritance that is secure for us through Jesus Christ and this radically subverts our attitude towards money. But before we get there, I want to help us to think firstly about the enticement of the prosperity gospel. That's point one. What's so appealing? And as we look at point one, I want us to actually pause and just to soak in why people are drawn to the prosperity gospel. There are three um, big reasons for why I want to do this first. Uh, Firstly, I want us as a church to cultivate a deeper sense of empathy. You see, I know that many of us in this room have friends and family who go to prosperity gospel preaching churches. And it's very easy for us to slag and criticize the movement. It's also very possible for us to become proud and very self-righteous in the process. I want you to know that people who believe in the prosperity gospel aren't all silly fools. No, there is a real appeal to it, and it's very easy to be blinded by it. Secondly, I want us to see that we, all of us in this room, are all vulnerable to the same errors. Because you see, prosperity preachers use just the right amount of scripture, just an adequate amount of theology, and adopt just enough plausibility for us to believe that it is true. And so I want us here at Grace Point to better understand the prosperity gospel so that we can build an immunity to it. That's what a good vaccine does, right? It exposes you to just the right amount of disease so that your body builds a healthy response to it. It's not good enough for us to say the prosperity gospel is wrong and not know why. I have personally read, studied, and listened to all the famous prosperity teachers I've mentioned above. Um, I did it so that you don't have to. Uh, But I did it so that we together can form a healthier and better response. Thirdly, I want us to realize that the prosperity gospel falls so far short from the true and biblical gospel. As I mentioned before, it promises far too little. It sets believers up for disappointment, and very significantly, it takes advantage of vulnerable people. So we need to understand it. What's so enticing about the prosperity gospel? Well, it's actually deeply connected to what it promises. The first thing the prosperity gospel promises is complete healing. And by that, I mean that they teach that Jesus' death on the cross has the power to remove all sorts of sins and sicknesses. So, so we'd agreed up to that point, right? So that's in the Bible. But they also believe that Jesus' work of atonement, his death on the cross, also brings healing, including healing to the, they call sin, of financial poverty, They believe that if you are poor, it's because of a particular sin. 
Prosperity teachers believe that poverty is not just a material condition, but a spiritual condition, one that Jesus came to heal. There's a quote I want to put up on the screen right now by the famous preacher, uh, Joseph Prince. Uh, Joseph Prince's church a few years ago bought a $300 million shopping mall in Singapore, uh, and the church auditorium sits at the top of that mall, which can house 5,000 people at one time. The average Sunday attendance at his church is 33,000 people. Uh, when I visited a few years ago, we had to book tickets on Monday. It's free to book, right? But you have to book tickets on Monday to attend church that particular Sunday. And uh, no one is late there, right? Um, I say all of this not to criticize their expensive building. I think it's fine for churches to have expensive buildings if it's stewarded well. I'm not criticizing their booking system. That's totally fine. I bring your attention to all of these facts because I want to emphasize this here is not a fringe group. It's not some minor Christian sect tucked into some corner that has no impact on our world. No, it is huge and influential. And this is what Joseph Prince teaches. It says, that's not all, my friend. On the cross, Jesus bore the curse of poverty. This is what the word of God declares. Read 2 Corinthians 8 for yourself. The entire chapter is about money and being a blessing financially to those who are in need. So don't let anyone tell you that the verse is referring to spiritual riches. I'll, I'll read this unequivocally. Let me tell you this. It is the devil who wants you sick and poor, but the God I know has paid a heavy price to redeem you from the curse of sickness and poverty, end quote. Hear him say this unequivocally. The devil is the reason you're sick and poor, but Jesus died on the cross to redeem you from that. Now, I don't know what you think about that teaching or that quote right there, but I hope you can see the appeal. Because you see, it helps to explain why someone is poor. It's because you're cursed. It's because of circumstances outside of your control. It's because of the devil. And so they say, here is the good news. If you trust in Jesus for salvation and redemption, if you believe he died to set you free, you can be confident that he will forgive you of your sin and heal you of your poverty. Complete healing. This is why prosperity teaching churches are flooded with people. It taps into a very primal and core insecurity, like we mentioned last week. We're scared of being poor. We're scared of being sick. We want to be free from all of that. And if there is a God who I can trust to liberate me from that, then sign me up. Perhaps what's so insidious and devious about the prosperity gospel is that it almost gets it right. Almost. Because it is true that sickness and poverty, they are a product of living in a broken world. It's just that the Bible never teaches that Jesus' death on the cross will reverse any of that in your life right now. Restoration of the fallen world is promised at Christ's return, but not right now. But you see, there's just enough truth and just enough Christian jargon for our hearts to want it to be true. But you see, if you look at it very closely, what you also realize is that the prosperity gospel is this gift of complete healing, but it's also not completely free. 
You need to give in order to get. And this is what I call a program of a cheap exchange. Prosperity teachers call this sowing a seed. Maybe you've heard this before. And the idea is that if you give to their church, if you give to their ministry, you are sowing a financial seed so that when God sees that, when he receives it, he's going to delight over it. And very importantly, he's going to give you more in return. It's an exchange. You sow a seed to the ministry, you get a return in exchange. Here's what Kenneth Copeland, here's another figure on the screen, one of the main figures of the prosperity gospel. This is what he teaches. He says, one of the exciting benefits of this revelation, giving to receive, is that financial harvests are not seasonal. If you give, you will receive. You may not receive the harvest immediately, but if you plant, you will always be on the receiving end. If you keep casting it out there, eventually you will have something coming on every wave. Steady income from the steadiest source of all, God the Father, by Christ Jesus, according to the riches in glory. Now again, I hope you see the appeal. Let's just set aside our skepticism for just a moment and put ourselves in the shoe of someone who is either struggling financially or just plain greedy. God here is pitched as the divine investment account whose rate of return is not your meager 5% in your banks. It's not even S&P 500 10%. No, God could double, even triple whatever you give to him. It's a cheap exchange. You give a little bit and God multiplies that and gives you much more in return. So if you've just enough faith, then your odds are better than winning the lottery. If you try hard enough, then prosperity teachers will tell you it's a sure win. I was at a a conference a few years ago in Sydney where a really famous prosperity gospel teacher was speaking. I was there to listen, just to, to, to learn more. And he was talking about how he and his wife were really poor when they first started off in ministry. And he told this really moving story uh, about how he made a deal with God. And he said to God, God, I'm going to empty my entire bank account and give it to the church. I'm going to completely trust in you. And all I'm asking is that you return the favor by blessing my family and ministry. The preacher then says, God received this seed and answered my prayer. And he says, today, our church has a multi-million dollar building. Our family is well off. And so everyone, listen, God can do the same for you today. So what happened after is that they passed the bags around. Back then, they still passed bags around for offerings. And I saw that people next to me were emptying, emptying, cash out of their wallets. They still use cash back then, right? But they emptied everything with a sort of blind and naive trust that this is what the Bible teaches and that it is true. Now, I'm not sure what motivated them. Could it be greed or desperation? I don't know. But I was actually so sick to the stomach that I walked out of that conference halfway. I have never done that before in my life. I've never walked out halfway through a sermon before, halfway through a service before. I went there to learn, but I just couldn't sit through the whole thing because I was revolted by the sheer abuse of God's word and taking advantage of vulnerable people. 
Yet so many people think this is what the Bible teaches. If I give to God, he'll return the favor. But here's one more magical piece, okay? Prosperity gospel teachers tell us that we need to claim all of this by faith. You just need to claim it, speak it into existence, believe in it with all your heart, and if you keep repeating it, it becomes a reality. Uh, The poster child of the prosperity gospel next is Joel Osteen. And here's what he says. I'm not going to mimic the accent. He says, God has already done everything he's going to do. The ball is now in your court. If you want success, if you want wisdom, if you want to be prosperous and healthy, you're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare words of faith and victory over yourself and your family. Declare these words. This is also known as the name it and claim it theology. Whatever you want, just say it and you can have it. Just believe really, really, really hard and so it will be for you. Now, before you roll your eyes, let's again consider the appeal, right? Because here is someone who says, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to take any responsibility. You don't even need to work. Your success, your wisdom, your prosperity, your health, they're all just sitting out there waiting for you. All you need to do now is muster enough faith and courage to say, all of this is mine and it can be mine. Sprinkle a little bit of Christian terminology, and there you go. Joel Osteen's church has over 45,000 attendees weekly. They bought a basketball court, one of those NBA-sized ones, and redid the whole thing and turned into a church. Again, I don't want us to think this is a fringe group. But I also don't want us to think that big church equals bad, right? Not all large gatherings teach the prosperity gospel, But I want you to know people actually believe in this because it appeals to a very basic desire for material comfort and riches. Turn on popular Christian television channels and there is a chance that prosperity teachers are headlining all the programs. This disease is infecting us and it touches on our fallen and sinful disposition to settle for material blessings as the climax of God's blessings for us. It's very hard for us to imagine something better, right? But here's the thing. There is something better. Church, wake up. Don't be easily misled. Uh, But to be properly guided, we need to start with the right foundations, don't we? We can turn the uh, PowerPoint off now. As you come to point two with me, I want us to see the errors of this gospel. And the first fundamental error of the prosperity gospel is that it has wrongly framed humanity's biggest problem. Now, they'll agree, and they will use this language. They will say sin is the biggest problem. But what they mean by sin and what we mean by sin are two completely different things. By sin, they mean your life is not going the way you want. You're not happy, you're not healthy, you're not wealthy, and they will say that's your problem. And Jesus has come to save you from that. But when we talk about sin, when the Bible talks about sin, it's talking specifically about two things. It is speaking of us as a humanity rebelling against God's law. We reject, 
what he says is right and wrong, and in doing so, we reject him as God. But sin is also rejecting God's love. We deny the relationship that God has initiated with us. We reject him as God. Sickness, poverty, brokenness, all the rest of it are connected to the fallenness of this world, but it's not our chief problem. Our chief problem is that we have rejected and denied God, and we are therefore worthy of God's judgment. That's why Ephesians 1, 7 to 8, read out to us earlier, tells us the real good news, the real gospel. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. Now the word sin in Ephesians 1 verse 7 is defined later on in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 2 to 3. Living for ourselves, rejecting God's rule, resisting God's love, that's our starting point. And the good news is that's what God promises unequivocally to forgive and restore to anyone today. But you see, this redemption, forgiveness, salvation, it cannot be bought. There is no exchange. We bring nothing to the table. The real gospel says that this redemption from sin, this redemption from eternal separation from God is only possible because God himself has paid the price. We cannot earn it. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, the whole passage tells us that God chose us before the creation of the world. Before you and I had anything to sow, God in his love predestined us. That's such good news, isn't it? Because if God can be bought and manipulated, then what's his price, right? This is where prosperity gospel teachers totally abuse vulnerable people. They say, if you can give more, then you can get more. Then you must think, oh my goodness, what if I have nothing to give? Well, really, the answer is, well, I guess that's just too bad for you, isn't it? No, the good news of the Bible is that everyone stands equal before God, equally sinful, but in Christ, equally saved. But this is where the prosperity teachers almost get it right. Point 2C. Because it is true that those in Christ have an inheritance, blessings that God has promised. But what prosperity preachers teach is that these blessings find their climax, their height in material riches. They say that these blessings can be claimed with certainty. And yet, nowhere does the Bible teach this. Now, I want to be super clear. The Bible does not deny material blessings. We'll talk about that next week. But the Bible teaches that the only blessings we can claim with certainty are God's promises for us in Christ. The promise of salvation, sanctification, and eternal security. That is certain. But this certainty is never applied to cash, cars, or credit cards. Ephesians 1, 13-14 says, The Holy Spirit, who is in all who belong to Christ, is the guarantee of this inheritance. And this inheritance is the promise of new heavens and new earth. An eternity where poverty, sickness, pain. An eternity where divorce, tragedy, and death will be no more. Because God is there to make all things right. 
You see, the prosperity teachers are right. God does promise these things, but not in a world where these things will perish away. No, they are promised for an eternity where moth and rust do not destroy, when Christ returns and these things will never decay. That's what I mean when I say the prosperity gospel teachers promise too little. They're saying God will give you that house, that car, that holiday, that new handbag. We need eyes of faith to hear that, to see that, and say, what? That's it? You've got to be kidding me. That's all the God of the universe can afford me? A new Gucci bag? Church, we should be longing for more, right? We need to be longing for more from the God of the universe. And more is what God promises. I find it so interesting, right? Revelation 21. uh, John describes to us the new creation, heaven, in stunning detail. And I got back to read uh, those verses, because some words are very hard to pronounce, right? But, but all of them are precious stones, right? Look at verses 15 to 21. Turn there with me. Revelation 21, verses 15 to 21. John describes this new city. And there he talks about how the new city of God is built with pure gold and precious stones like jasper, sapphire, emerald. And those are the only ones I can pronounce, right? But all of these beautiful stones that we cover in this world and in verse 21 is so interesting he says that the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass that's really nice gold what I find fascinating is this so many of us spend our short lives here on this earth searching for gold We work, we labor, we sweat, we fight. Sometimes we even kill for gold, money and wealth, right? Gold is like the most important thing to us and all that it symbolizes. You see, the author Revelation is saying this. You know the thing that you think is most important? You know the thing that you spend your whole life working for and fighting for and killing for? In the new creation in heaven... That's what you'll be walking on. That gold is not even worth putting in a safe. It's not even worth framing on a wall. Your feet, the part that comes in contact with the dirtiest things, will walk on that which you think is most precious on earth. You see that? Why? Because God has a greater inheritance for you. Revelation 21 verse 22, that inheritance is God himself. The God who is the source of all provision and protection. Don't you see? This is what the true gospel promises. A security that can never be snatched. A satisfaction that can never be snuffed out. A stability that can never be stolen away. So then, how does this shape our attitude towards wealth and money? That's our topic, right? If what the prosperity gospel teaches, teaches not true, if the true gospel promises an inheritance that even the greatest of all riches of this world cannot compare, then how do we approach the topic of wealth and money? As mentioned, we're going to talk about the five S's over this entire month, and today I'm going to introduce the first two. Firstly, that as it relates to wealth and money, the Bible teaches us to sow 
but not sowing in the prosperity gospel sense. By sowing, I mean laboring by working. I was inspired to use this word sow from Genesis 3 verse 17, when God said to Adam and subsequently to all of humanity that they would work, they would tend, they would plow, they would sow the ground, right? Because you see, the Bible teaches that the ordinary means of making money is through working, where you are given a compensation for your energy or expertise. And in today's society, that compensation is often financial. Your energy, your effort, your expertise are rewarded. Let me give you examples uh, from Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 10 to 18. Uh, these are all printed in your outlines. This passage here is actually a warning given to the Israelites. God is telling them to be careful. Because, you see, Deuteronomy speaks of a time when God's people would know abundance and affluence. Uh, there will be a time where there's plenty to eat, drink, and enjoy. And the passage is saying, don't become so lost in enjoying God's gifts that you forget Him as the giver. And so verse 18 says this, But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms His covenant which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. Now, what's really interesting about this verse, firstly, is that it sees productivity as being connected to wealth. In other words, it's expected that your productive work would produce wealth, right? Second of all, though, what's really interesting is that it doesn't deny the production of wealth. It doesn't say that money or wealth is bad. It just says, as you produce this wealth, as you enjoy the fruits, remember that it is God who made all of this possible. Proverbs 31, verse 16 to 18. You know this passage. It speaks of the virtuous woman, the prime example of godliness. And in a range of descriptions, she is said to be one who buys a field, plants a vineyard, works, and profits from it. That's a financial compensation for work. Proverbs 10, verse 4 says, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Proverbs 14, verse 23, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. The Bible continually and consistently honors profit, fruit, and blessing as a consequence of a job well done. So you see, I think there are three characteristics of a Christian's work that is motivated by the gospel and the Bible. And if followed, all things being equal, could produce a greater financial reward. Uh, firstly, I want to encourage us as Christians to be industrious in our work. You see, the Bible celebrates hard work not as an escape from reality, not as a compensation for our low self-esteem, not as an attempt to seek approval or affirmation. No, the grace of God secures all of that for us in Christ. And so the Bible celebrates hard work as a virtue that Christians display as an expression of obedience to Christ. Grace point, very specifically, we need to reject the sort of lying flat, quiet, quitting, do the benjamin mentality that is so common in our society today. What kind of witnesses would we be as Christians when we are functionally stealing from our companies? Because that's what being lazy is. 
taking a wage for promised work, but doing less than required. But you see, all things being equal, being industrious and productive is often rewarded. Now, I totally understand that we live in an unjust society where the wrong people get rewarded and promoted, or sometimes the reward of hard work is more work, right? And in times like these, it's so easy to succumb to the system and do the bare minimum to get by. After all, that's what everyone else is doing, right? Why should I be doing more? But one encourage us to continue to be a prophetic voice in these spaces of injustice. Rather than throw our hands up and give up, we continue to work hard knowing that we are firstly working for God, but also because we know that God will honor that hard work in its proper time. Industrious work, that is one of the ordinary means of financial compensation. Second of all, we need to work with integrity. And this relates to our behavior and manner. And again, this is one of the ways we bear witness to the gospel in our workplaces. In a world where cutthroat competition, dishonesty, and injustice reigns, your integrity as a Christian worker will be a light that pushes back the darkness in so many workplaces. There is a chance you'll be taken advantage of. There is a chance you'll be sidelined for it. But we need to first remember that God honors that and we are representing Him. But you see, we also need to remember that all things being equal, businesses and companies actually value integrity. We have a family friend, one of my dad's good friends, who was a successful businessman before he retired, and he loved playing golf. Like growing up, I low-key thought his full-time job was to travel the world to play golf, right? Because that's all I saw him do. So one day I was chatting with him and I said, hey, uncle, like, why do you play so much golf? It's such a boring sport. Why do, you, why do you play so much golf, right? And he said, that's how you work out who you want to do business with. Interesting. Tell me more. He said, golf is a long game where there's a lot of conversation." So you find out a lot about the person, their interests, their passions over an extended golf game. You get to get a really good read on a person. But he also said that golf is a game where it's very easy to cheat. You could lie about how many swings you took. And he says it takes a lot for a person to be honest in a golf game, especially when no one is watching. And he says, if a person has integrity on the golf course when no one is watching, then he or she will have integrity in a boardroom on the other side of the world. That's a person you can trust. And that's how he closes million-dollar deals, by playing golf. It's not the golf, it's the integrity. Church, how much more for us as Christians, who are given clear instructions on what we are to embody as ambassadors of Christ? Work with integrity because God sees it. That is reward in and of itself. But again, under the right circumstances, there may be right financial rewards too. Third, as you think of your work, let me encourage you to think of your impact. How is it serving your neighbors? And by neighbors, I mean common humanity. Here's a simple question. How are you adding value to those around you? And I say this because I believe that a deep sense of satisfaction and financial compensation often comes from seeing your work through the lens of impact. 
If we keep focusing on adding value to others, we start becoming valuable to others, right? Let me give you an example. What's the number one question that all entrepreneurs and startups need to ask? What problem am I solving, right? And the companies that take off are those that identify an area of need and provide incredible value to those around them. That's why people pay for the services, because it changes lives. So for you, as you think of your work, even if you don't start your own business, right, even if you're just an employee like me, resist the urge to think first about how much it pays, Resists from thinking about its perks. Resist thinking, you know, does my office have water views? So that's nice. Those are fine questions. But fundamentally, let me encourage you to ask this question. Will this job help me to add value to those around me? What sort of impact is this having? Because thinking through this lens is simply following what Jesus says. Love your neighbor adding value to their lives. And church, I hope you see that when we combine industriousness, integrity, and impact, we become extremely valuable workers or bosses who are not easily replaced and are thus, by implication, more likely for financial success. Do you see how walking God's way isn't just honorable, right, and godly, but in the right context can be rewarded? And I want you to know, as a church, that's a good thing. It's not something to be feared. So we sow industriously with integrity and with an eye for impact. And as we think about money and wealth, Scripture also encourages us to serve. That's the second S, to give. But can I be a little bit more specific as we think about this? Because generally we just say, all right, be generous, give, that's it. But since we have a special time to do this, I want to go a little bit longer and just extend a little bit on what giving is, right? Firstly, our serving and our giving needs to be guarded. What I mean is this. It's not uncommon for Christians to be a bit undiscerning or not careful about who or what they give to. Usually, uh, someone will ask for financial support. If it looks good, if it sounds sincere, and if it's generally towards a good cause, we tend to give. Uh, but that may not be the best practice. Uh, listen very closely. This is controversial. Not every missionary, not every Christian organization, not every charity is worth giving to. And so be guarded. I want us to be careful. Uh, ask some really hard questions, right? Ask questions like, do I actually agree with the vision and mission of these organizations? Ask questions like, is this person actually trustworthy? Ask questions like, if they say they are a missionary, does what they do actually constitute as mission work in the Bible? Or does it just sound nice? This is your money, right? This is your heart-sowed, heart-earned money. It's your right to ask these questions. Because you see, every no you say is a bigger yes to someone or something else. So perhaps it's not good to give to five mediocre or low-performing ministries organizations. Perhaps it's better to allocate the same amount to one or two ministries so that its impacts can be compounded, be guarded. Because here's the thing, though, when you ask questions and when you start being selective, you actually become more invested and involved in these ministries. 
Your giving doesn't just feel obliged. There is now a sense of ownership because you really care and believe. You start praying for them more. You start caring for them more. So church, serve with your finances, but be guarded. Next, serve while being guarded, but also serve generously. And by generous, I mean sacrificially. Now, it's important for you to know that as a church, Grace Point, we do not mandate how much you should give, nor do I think we ever should. We don't say 10, 15, 20% of your income or anything like that, right? We take our cue from passages like Romans 12, which says that our entire lives are a living sacrifice. So nothing in our lives is out of bounds for God. He owns all of it. So we actually decide how much we keep, not how much we give, right? We also take cue from our passages like 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 to 7. Tim read it for us earlier. God loves a cheerful giver. So we actually think it's counterproductive, even if you gave 90% of your wealth away, but did it begrudgingly and bitterly. There's a lot of Christian freedom in this area. I want you to hear that. But the principle is also generous, sacrificial. In other words, you should be able to feel the impact of your giving on your financial budget. You're not just throwing crumbs. It should be giving that is prayerfully considered and from your heart. Remember what I said last week. This is where how we spend our money shows what we worship. And so church, that's something for you and your family to sit down and pray over. Everyone's circumstance and context is different. And if you want specific guidance, the best thing to do is actually for you and I to sit down and talk in detail about what generous giving looks like for you or speak to someone you trust. Because this is an intensely personal area of discipleship. I wouldn't do it justice by giving blanket principles from the pulpit. Everyone's journey is different, even if the principle is the same. So if you want, come up after the service, we can talk. Drop me an email, make an appointment, we can talk. Or send a question through the Q&A link, and we can have a discussion. Uh, but you know, serving is not just about uh, formal ways of giving to church and ministries. As a church, listen closely, I want to encourage us to use our money, to use our budgets to serve others by being a blessing, by expressing tangible generosity to people around us. So, for example, okay, could you set aside some money to buy someone at work a coffee? Not because they have no money to buy a coffee, but because you want to show love. Could you set aside some money in your budget to buy someone at church lunch every now and then? Not because they need it, but because having lunch together facilitates conversation. Uh, This is not a sort of calculative generosity. They don't owe us. But it's just something very small to say, you matter. You matter to God and you matter to me. And I want to bless and love you and be generous to you. Lastly, our serving should be growing. Our giving should be growing. It should grow in at least three ways. Firstly, in capacity. So here's the thing. Serving financially or generously is actually a muscle. It needs to be trained. You don't go from zero to bench pressing 120 kilos overnight. It needs to be trained. So if you don't serve in this way just yet, if you don't know how to, if you feel a bit scared to, then start small. 
I've used illustration of uh, Rick Warren, a pastor in the U.S., who does this thing called reverse tithing. So he and his wife give 90% away and keep 10% for themselves. Now, we may look at that and go, oh, my goodness, that's incredible, but I could never get there, right? We just need to remember where they started. They started small decades ago. So church, if you want to grow in your giving capacity, start small. And I want to encourage us to stretch that capacity. Uh, As a helpful principle, maybe this is where percentages of giving can be helpful. Like if we say I give 10%, for example, of my income, you can decide gross or net. That's up to you, right? But if you set that, then as your income increases, your giving naturally increases because it's tied to a percentage. That's great, right? But part of growing in capacity, maybe, is also considering increasing that percentage as an act of faith and generosity. Uh, let me encourage you to pray about that and consider growing your capacity to serve. Secondly, we need to also be thinking about growing in our reach. That is, the groups you give to. Uh, listen, if you are a Christian, then your first and primary calling in terms of giving is actually to the local church. The local church is God's plan A for carrying out his mission, for loving the needy, for equipping God's people, for reaching the world with the gospel. And if the church is God's plan A, then it ought to be our plan A as well. So it's not surprising in passages like Acts 4, 2 Corinthians 2, Philippians 4, and the like, the New Testament pattern has always been giving to the local church. 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, reinforce the importance of giving back to places where you were taught and nurtured in the faith. So very practically, if you're a member here at Grace Point, if you benefit from our preaching, teaching, ministries, and shepherding, this is your local church. And I want to make this point because I know that in Sydney, there are so many great ministries to give to. If you've been a Christian for like five years or less, you know a dozen of good things to give to. And everyone's sort of competing for that, right? But if the Bible is our instruction, then our emphasis on giving ought to be to the local church. It should be heavily skewed towards that direction. But then, of course, it's not limited to the local church. And that's what I mean by reach. Because as your giving capacity grows, your options for groups to give to will also grow. So I encourage us to think about that and consider that. But thirdly, very importantly, as we give, we grow in our delight. Because here's the thing, our delight is amplified when we give. You may have heard the saying before, joy is complete when it is shared. So when we share in the abundance that God has given us, we can expect a growing delight as the gospel goes further and deeper, as more people are blessed by our generosity, and as we mirror the bountiful goodness of God. Acts 20 verse 35 tells us, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we believe that? That it is wired within us. There is a joy that is activated when we participate in the giving and generous nature of God. My prayer is that our delight as a church will compound as we learn the discipline and the delight of generous giving. Indeed, the great and imperishable inheritance that God has for us in Christ makes it possible for us to hold on to our earthly treasures loosely and to serve with our earthly treasures generously. 
There are a couple of points to ponder there. I want to encourage us as a church then um, to think about this and maybe drink morning tea, find someone to have a conversation. Out of the three categories, identify one category that you're particularly challenged by and want to grow in. What is a category of serving that is new to you? Do you agree or disagree? What commendations or objections do you have? And thirdly, what questions do you have arising out of the sermon? Church, I hope and pray that we've made an inch closer towards healthier and a holistic view of money and wealth. Let me pray for us and invite the band to lead us in worship. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this greater inheritance you've promised to us in Christ. And so, our Lord and God, as these truths are imprinted into our hearts, may this overflow in a sort of work that honors you and a sort of generosity that blesses your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.